Welcome to Global Minnesota Podcast, connecting, informing, and engaging Minnesotans with the world and exploring important international issues. For a complete list of programs and to join us, visit globalminnesota.org. Today's program, we're especially honored to have our new Consul General in Chicago, so we'll, we'll get to that in a little bit. But I want to make a special thank you to Jan Bauer, who's the Consul in the UK government's office here in Minneapolis-St. Paul. Well, thank you, Mark, and hello and good morning to everyone. It's really an honor to be here, and I want to thank Global Minnesota for hosting this really great event and to be able to introduce our relatively new Consul General. So thank you, and have a great day, everyone. Thank you. We have the great privilege in Minnesota of having partners and wonderful other people we get to work with. Gabrielle Gerbeau is our state's head of our World Trade Office the Minnesota Trade Office, the MTO, and she's also the state's protocol officer. That means she's the key contact for our official visitors and friends who come here from all over the planet. Thank you very much for being with us this morning, Gabrielle. Thank you very much, Mark. You know, in recent years, Minnesota has had the honor to host a steady stream of high-level visitors from the UK, including British Ambassador Kim Darek in 2018, Council General Stephen Bridge and Council General John Saville, each of them were here regularly, and also the UK Minister for Sport, Tracy Crouch, was here to attend the Super Bowl at US Bank Stadium in 2018. Council General, any news on an NFL franchise for the UK, perhaps? You know, all of these visits were coordinated by Council General, our dear friend, who we value, you know, she's a valued local partner in the Minnesota-UK trade relationship and in the UK relationship in, as, a, as a whole. Jan, thank you very much for all you do for us. You know, during each of these visits, we discuss not only the trade, but the broad and mutual beneficial ties that we have with the country. Just to add some perspectives and some numbers, you know, I work in trade, so I need to give you some trade numbers. Minnesota companies exported more than $550 million in 2019. Yes, despite the uncertainty of the market, ranking the United Kingdom as a vital and a ninth most important export destination. Just to give you a little bit more of information, about 70 Minnesota companies, 7-0, operate at more than 500 business locations in the United Kingdom. But this is not, not only Minnesota to the United Kingdom. The United Kingdom has done a great amount of investment here in Minnesota. It's very sizable. You know, more than 60 UK-based companies operate at 150 business locations here in Minnesota, investing 1.5 billion with a B in plants, property, equipment, and generating almost 19,000 jobs for Minnesotans. Yes, that is how important our relationship is. So now that the UK has completed its exit from the European Union, we enter a new phase in this relationship and actually I would call it even a new relationship that is being defined as we speak. It is extremely exciting that the negotiations for a new UK-US free trade agreement are underway this year, and they're off to a very good start. I was very pleased to see an emphasis on small and medium-sized enterprises, the SMEs. You know, my team regularly helps our state SMEs with their export needs, and we are eager to continue our support in this effort and the new opportunities that the FTA will bring. And of course, Consul General Gogbashian was due to visit Minnesota and Governor Waltz in person last March, and we really regretted the need to cancel the visit. As we were discussing just before starting the session, if it would have been one week earlier. Anyway, 
It is my honor to introduce him today. Alan Gogbashian, who arrived in Chicago in January, has been a member of the British Diplomatic Service since 2008. His most recent roles have included Deputy Ambassador to Morocco and Mauritania, the Deputy Director of the Americas and Head of International Human Resources. Before joining the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, Alan Gagbashian worked in corporate law in London and Paris, international development in Eastern Europe and life science sectors. Great fit for Minnesota, General Consul General. He speaks French, Armenian and Russian. Consul General, it is an honor to welcome you virtually to Minnesota and we certainly look forward to welcome you here in person. Merci beaucoup, Gabriel. Thank you so much for that warm welcome. And uh, Mark, thank you for your uh, kind words at the start. And I'm delighted to be with you. Um, as Gabrielle said, I was meant to be there in March this year in person to have a session with you, Global Minnesota, uh, and also to meet the governor. But then none of us got the 2020 that we signed up for. Um, I certainly didn't. I arrived in January. I had two months of uh, relative normal, getting to know my wonderful team. Uh, including Jan Bauer, uh, who I'm delighted has uh, joined us today. She has um, uh, played a key, key pivotal role in developing UK-Minnesota relations. Um, so I'm just really, really happy to be here in this way, at least, if not in person. And I hope we can remedy that uh, as soon as possible. I can get there as quickly as I can. So uh, you may be wondering, I don't know if you can see this, but uh, there's a wonderful bouquet of red roses here right next to me. And uh, sadly, this wasn't a gift for me personally. Um, but I do want to share a, a bit about these roses because uh, I think you'll find it interesting. And Mark, I know you, you have a particular interest in military history. Um, so this, this might be something that uh, fascinates you. Um, every year since 1966, uh, the British Consulate General in Chicago has been receiving six red roses on August the 1st. And this year was no exception. Uh, they arrived and we have no idea who sends these roses. They come uh, anonymously and we even tried to contact the florist who delivers them to find out uh, who sends them. And the florist doesn't know because they receive an envelope with cash uh, with no name uh, to pay for the delivery. And this has been going on, as I said, since 1966. And the reason it comes on August the 1st is because uh, it's to commemorate Minden Day. Now, Mark, I won't test your, your military uh, history, um, but I'm sure some of you know that Minden Day uh, commemorates the uh, Battle of Minden of 1759. And Minden Day is remembered uh, to this day in the UK by a number of regiments uh, whose uh, predecessors took part in that battle. And they mark uh, the day by uh, sending roses or sometimes even wearing roses in their hair uh, and on their uniforms. So that explains why uh, on Minden Day every year we get these roses and it comes with this kind of beautiful stationary, uh, you know, typed out, uh, setting out kind of all of the regiments uh, that were involved uh, in the Battle of Minden, and there's some, there's some uh, quite poetic prose uh, at the bottom there as well about what happened on Minden Day. So, I mean, I share this with you because 
first of all, I think it's you know, a wonderful story. The, the press has written about it. The Tribune here in Chicago has written about it. The UK Telegraph, the Independent, have written about this mystery uh, that uh, comes upon us uh, every year on the 1st of August. And I, I find it quite comforting that in this digital age when uh, information is so readily available as such a commodity that there's something unknowable uh, and mysterious uh, about this. Maybe, maybe it's one of you watching. If so, thank you very much. But um, I also share the story because I think it says something in a very kind of personal, uh, touching way about the friendship that exists between the US and the UK. As Mark said at the start, we have fought wars together. We have forged alliances in times of war and in times of peace. We've gone through the Cold War together. Our people have fought side by side. We have together crafted the international architecture which the world operates by with a rules-based international system. And we've done this side by side, uh, shoulder to shoulder. And um, I know that uh, Armistice Day is, is something that's uh, very important for you in Minneapolis. I know the Brits pub does a good job in marking that occasion. Um, and our ties just really run so deep. And uh, I don't think there's any other bilateral relationship in the world that has the breadth and the depth of the ties that the US and the UK have in security, uh, political, uh, economic uh, arenas. In every sense, the ties run uh, wide and deep. And I think particularly now with the challenge that we're all facing with this pandemic and the economic recovery that we're all grappling with, we will need to draw very deeply on those ties and on that friendship to face this challenge together because no country can really go through this on its own. This is too big. If we pull the drawbridge up and try and take a, an isolated approach to this, it just won't work. It's, it's too big, it's too challenging. And I think there's no other partnership better place to face this head on together than the US-UK partnership. And I'd just like to quickly uh, highlight three areas where I think that partnership will really make a difference as we uh, address the economic recovery challenges together. First of all, as, as Gabrielle mentioned and as Mark mentioned, we are negotiating a free trade agreement at the moment. We are in the middle of a third round, uh, as I speak. Our Secretary of State for International Trade, Liz Truss, is here in Washington speaking with uh, US Trade Representative Lighthizer. Uh, and those talks have been going very well. They kicked off in May. They uh, would have started earlier in March, but because of the pandemic, we started in May. They've been continuing virtually with over 100 negotiators on each side. And they've been going very well. They've been going quite quickly. Uh, we've been covering all of the main areas you'd expect to have covered in a free trade agreement. But we also have been pushing the envelope because we want this to be something that's state-of-the-art, that goes deeper and is more ambitious than any other free trade agreement uh, that we have out there at the moment. And we think it's a great opportunity to uh, push the envelope on things like digital, on innovation, to make sure that we are creating the standards for the world uh, for tech uh, and the digital space, as well as the more traditional areas that we see covered in, in FTAs. 
So that's the, that's the first area where I think uh, our partnership between our two countries can really make a difference to the recovery by promoting free trade, by keeping uh, trade channels open, we will help create jobs, we will help the economy by, uh, by boosting trade and investment. Secondly, our cooperation in multilateral fora, that's something that uh, we have always done well uh, and that we are continuing to do well. The US and the UK have been working closely together in the G7 and the G20, particularly to make sure that international trade channels remain open uh, and uh, that people don't knee-jerk into a protectionist type of response that we perhaps saw after the Great Depression, but that the global economy still uh, functions and trade, uh, trade sources and trade supply routes remain open. And then thirdly, I think we have an opportunity with this economic recovery uh, to make sure that it's done in a sustainable way. Uh, people have been talking about the green phoenix having uh, economies rebound and rebuild with uh, environmental issues at their heart and sustainability at its heart and that's particularly important for the uk at the moment as we look to host cop 26 the climate summit in glasgow scotland next year so as we recover together as we work together we'll be looking to make sure that uh, clean energy, renewables, and sustainability are absolutely central to that conversation. So that's really how I see uh, our priorities uh, shaping up with the US. Um, I'd be very happy to talk a bit more about what that looks like in the Midwest, um, but Mark, I'll stop there and uh, hand over to you at this stage. Thank you so much for that great overview. And I want to pick up more or less on one of the key points. We share a lot of concerns and values. And one of the things that the UK has shown both in its hosting of the uh, Conference of the Parties on Climate, but also just in terms of national policy changes, that that's very, very close to the strong emphasis on the climate crisis and climate solutions here in Minnesota. Our cities, our agencies, our companies are extremely active. What are the uh, items that are in those negotiations underway that really address climate together? Because, you know, so much of the, the failure of the other trade agreements that have been crashing and burning in Congress have been around labor issues, uh, human rights issues, environment issues. So to get something done that won't crash and burn, it's going to have to have really serious environmental measures embedded climate is the natural one. Do you have some, any insights or some ideas from all of your other work and from the three rounds that have been underway of what some of those climate addressing uh, measures might be or could be, or we should aspire to put into that agreement? Yeah, uh, thank you. It's, it's a great point. And again, I think this is an area where we're trying to be different. So normally climate issues, environmental issues, aren't normally central to free trade agreement negotiations. Um, but in this case, on the other hand, we, we do want them to be uh, on the table and part of the conversation. So I would say that when it comes to all of the free trade agreements that the UK is negotiating now, having left the European Union uh, earlier this year, we'll be looking to see where we can um, be more ambitious when it comes to things like 
innovation, when it comes to sustainable agriculture, uh, when it comes to um, global tariffs and reducing tariffs uh, which support you know, clean energy and renewables. So I think it's, it's something that's going to be uh, somewhat of a thread throughout all of these negotiations. Uh, and when it comes to things like manufacturing, agriculture, uh, we will be absolutely pushing innovative solutions which favor sustainability. Great. Well, I know that you've come with a big picture about how in this region, which is your responsibility, um, our companies, our educational institutions, our agencies can meet and date and maybe marry up with uh, like-minded and equally innovative and future thinking uh, similar organizations in the UK. Can you give us a little uh, hint or maybe a big picture of what you're thinking of, what you're looking for? Because this audience here, they signed up to come hear you, but they want to be part of creating the future. And you're describing one of the main vehicles that perhaps we could use to help create that future together. Uh, thank you. It's, I mean, it's all about partnership. Everything that we do at the concert is about partnering uh, with companies, with institutions, with governments throughout the Midwest region. I mean, this is a fantastic region. There's 14 states that we cover from Chicago and uh, our team covers all different elements of the economy and when it comes to the work that we do. So we have teams covering financial services, advanced manufacturing, life sciences, um, science and innovation. So we have uh, specialists who constantly reach out to companies across the region and make sure they're getting the support they need when it comes to partnering with the UK. I mean, when it comes to the Midwest, um, really, I want to see UK companies putting the Midwest right at the top of their list for trade and investment when it comes to consideration for how to uh, enter the US market. I mean, as I said, you, you have it all in this region. Uh, you know, just, just Minnesota, looking at Minnesota, when it comes to the, the medical uh, expertise that you have and, and the, the leaders you are in that field on electrical goods, on agriculture, on advanced manufacturing. The Midwest has it all. So I really want to see UK companies putting the Midwest at the top of their list. And also Great. the FDA negotiations. You know, if this negotiation delivers what we hope it will deliver, we are looking at an increase of $15 billion in trade between the US and the UK and a reduction of half a billion dollars of tariffs. I really want the Midwest to be at the heart of that discussion. The success of this FTA depends on companies across the country, and particularly, I think, uh, in the Midwest, as, as a breadbasket, as an economic uh, hub in the, U in the US to shape that negotiation. So we need to hear from companies about what their concerns are, what opportunities they want us to, to push for, because we really genuinely want this to be uh, as ambitious as possible. You make a really excellent point. Uh, we call them free trade agreements. We act like they're one thing, but we know some companies, some sectors really benefit, some others take it in the shorts, as we used to say. So having our region get visibility, and you're speaking to that, that makes us all very happy, but also having our people, our companies, our agencies, our academics, our voices being heard and being projected is really our responsibility. And I know that some folks out there have questions. I wanna just suggest that people with questions 
put them into the chat room. They'll be sent over to us. Um, and so use that chat function uh, for your specific questions. Um, and then we'll be able to take some of those. But it sounds like um, you are very open to having companies and others from our region really contacting you directly there or contacting Jan here. I mean, she's in our region. Uh, it sounds like you're running a very welcoming shop down there. That's, uh, that's absolutely the case because I think, you know, if this free trade agreement doesn't work for business in the Midwest and doesn't work for business in the UK, then we've failed and we really missed an opportunity. Um, we will do whatever it takes to make this agreement as ambitious as possible. And both sides, both the US politicians and the UK politicians have said, this should be an agreement that benefits everybody, that benefits every region. So this should resonate in rural Nebraska just as much as it does in the metropolis like Minneapolis or Chicago um, uh, or New York. So the only way that's going to work is if the communication flows well between us and uh, industry and business on both sides. So we're reaching out. We've been already doing a lot of outreach events in different sectors, particularly within the agricultural space. We've already done that in Minnesota. We're doing that in other states in the region. Um, but we are really ready to come and speak to you uh, and your industry about what the opportunities could be under this agreement. So please do let us know. Come through Jan, come directly to me. We'll connect you to the right people uh, in our teams to get you the answers you need, but also to learn from you because whatever information you give us will be vital intelligence, which we can feed in directly uh, into the negotiation uh, as it continues in real time. Great. It seems like it's one of the benefits of this Zoom digital era is that uh, we will run you around when the time is safe and we'll make you tired and stretch too thin. But for the moment, almost anybody can reach you or Jan or, or a key person through this technology. And I think we got to make hay while the sun is shining on this deal. Plus, these negotiations won't go on forever. So now's the time. Right. When we think about other areas, and I'll just, uh, I'll just use one example. I have a niece who went to undergraduate and graduate school in London. She fell in love with London and with a Londoner, I might add, and she would love to go back. But there's a lot of rules now. Our country is making it incredibly difficult for people to come here, even to go to school. And I think it's more complicated in the UK than it used to be. And so can you speak to how if somebody had fallen in love and wanted to move to London and, and pursue an opportunity or find an innovative company, what's the process? What's the procedure? What's the, what's the advice you might give a young person who's bright-eyed and just loves London and can't get back there soon enough but can't quite figure out how to get there? So I think, well, first of all, when it comes to love, we can recommend a florist in Chicago. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll tell you that. These Excellent. Excellent. But you, know, you, raise, you raise a really important issue because when it comes to economic recovery and economic growth, international mobility is absolutely central to that. And you know, US-UK mobility is really, really vital. I mean, just the number of flights we have a day between the UK and the US before all this happened was, was really quite, quite striking. So we need to get that 
back to how it was uh, as soon as possible. And I know the airlines are pushing for that. Um, but of course, we've got to balance that with, with public safety, like every country that's grappling with this. It's that constant tension between wanting to do all we can to open up the economy as quickly as possible, uh, while making sure that there's no compromise when it comes to public safety. And that's the approach the UK has been taking within that tension. It's been making decisions uh, on a risk uh, management basis uh, when it comes to uh, those decisions about opening up the country again, uh, based on the risk to the British public. So I know that visa uh, application centers in the US have recently reopened. They were all closed for a while. So uh, people who need to get a visa to travel, whether that's students uh, looking to go soon uh, or others who need to travel, uh, they are able to apply uh, at the visa application centers again in the usual way. So we're starting to see things reopen. Uh, it's not easy because the quarantine requirements are still in place uh, for arrivals in the UK. Um, but hopefully as we see the number of cases coming down and the situation improving, uh, we'll see commensurate uh, loosening of those restrictions. Great. We'll look forward to things. And uh, of course, I'm happy that uh, she fell in love with London. And uh, it'll be great to see how she thrives in that kind of exciting environment. We have a really great question. I, I don't know uh, if this is going to resonate with your uh, what you know, but you may have heard that our Mayo Clinic has a partnership with Oxford University Clinics, uh, with the hospitals, with NHS. Uh, in opening a clinic there in London, 15 Portland Place is apparently yeah. the address. Any thoughts about how that's going and about other things we can do to accelerate that, you know, one really special shared expertise, shared uh, center of excellence, medical device, healthcare. I mean, that's why we're doing a World's Fair on health and wellness here in 2027, it's because we have that as a central feature of our economy. And I know that's true in the UK as well. I mean, medical excellence is synonymous with Minnesota. I mean, you have the best hospital, I think it was voted again, number one hospital in the US recently, the Mayo Clinic. And we were extremely proud to have uh, Mayo come to the UK and open uh, last year. I mean, for us, that's a, that's a huge uh, badge of honor, and we are thrilled with that partnership. We're delighted with the co collaboration that's going on between Mayo uh, and Oxford as well. Oxford's mm -hmm. been playing a real leading role in the vaccine development, uh, and having those conversations with Mayo uh, helps us uh, in that process as well. So uh, we couldn't be happier with the way that uh, investment has gone. Uh, and we're looking to see, we're looking forward to see how that develops and, and perhaps uh, grows as well. And it's a prime location, as you know, right in the middle of London. Uh, and we've seen a Cleveland Clinic uh, do something similar as well in, in Grodler Place. So uh, right by where the old US Embassy used to be. So already we're seeing uh, deep investment in the medical field uh, in the UK. Again, that's something that I think this free trade agreement will look at. It's something we want to encourage. Um, we know the NHS isn't on the table uh, itself when it comes to uh, the FTA, but wider services around it, creating the si situation for, for private clinic investment, the way that Mayo has done and Cleveland has done, uh, is something that we really do want to encourage.
And do I understand correctly, um, that's one of the specialties or verticals that's been placed in your consulate's uh, backyard and you've got some special staff and devoted staff to that broader sort of life sciences, biotech, uh, yeah, medical area? Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. We have, a, we have a life sciences team that's focused on promoting trade and investment in the life sciences sector. So we already have some excellent ties with them and through Jan uh, into Medical Alley uh, in Minnesota with Mayo, of course, uh, and others as well. So there's a team right here ready to speak to your companies and your businesses uh, and to help support them when it comes to considering how to increase uh, their reach into the UK. Great. I know you're in a big city with a lot of cultural events and activities. And of course, we pride ourselves here for our theater, our music. Have you thought of some potential things that when it is safe, that we might do that exchanges some of our cultural resources in a very kind of sophisticated way with our good friends in the UK? I was I was really kind of impressed to see that I think more people in Minnesota go to the theatre per capita than anywhere else in the U.S. And I know Except, you were, yes, yes, it's incredible. It's incredible. So uh, obviously the arts and culture run deep in your veins in Minneapolis, um, and of course it's the same for us in the West End and in London. Um, so those 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 ties are already there. The interest is already there. So. I'd be really open to looking at what more we can do. Uh, I would say that this is an area where uh, our new ambassador, Karen Pierce, is really keen uh, to make a difference when it comes to cultural exchange, uh, deepening those ties, especially to reach uh, younger demographics and a new demographic in the US. I mean, we talk a lot about the ties that bind us historically uh, when it comes to fighting wars together and, and forging alliances together. And I think for that generation, the US-UK alliance is just second nature. But what does the US-UK partnership look like for the younger generation uh, of Americans, for the Latinx community, for the, for the black community? Um, we need to make the US-UK relationship as relevant and as personal for them uh, as it is for the person who sent me these roses, uh, as, as, the, as the person who has gone through the Cold War. And I think cultural exchange, uh, sports, the arts are a wonderful vehicle for reaching out to each other and for forging those ties. So I'm hopeful that you'll see more from us in this space uh, as we implement uh, some of these new policies uh, and priorities in that area. And you know, with, with the thriving cultural scene in Minneapolis, we'd be sure to uh, include you. You know, your background includes some very important service in Africa. Often people don't know one of the most important secrets. Well, I mean, secret is a funny term, but one thing people don't know about Minnesota is just the size and scope and sophistication of our diaspora communities. Southeast Asia is of course quite famous because everyone who came after the Vietnam War, it's a very, very large, very well organized, very sophisticated community in all of Asia. In fact, Latin America, maybe a quarter of a million people from Mexico and Latin America, very, very deeply embedded into our region. 
but probably in that range, we have diaspora from East and West and parts of South Africa and the MENA. So we are very, very focused on that new generation of diaspora who've come here and who are the business creators. They're many of the frontline workers in our healthcare system, in our medical device companies. And I'm hoping that we can tap part of your experience in Africa, marrying it up with the interests that we have, because we see that in terms of speaking about free trade agreements, the, the African free trade area is really the, the kind of model for the planet. It makes the rest of us look like we're sort of 1930s protectionists when we compare it. But those businesses being created, and I know this would be the case in Chicago, but all over the Midwest and your region, our diasporas are some of the drivers of the international business, those small and medium sized and sometimes bigger. But I'm wondering if there are um, uh, specific things that you've thought about because you have had this uh, experience in your career that as a region we might tap some of your connections and contact some of your embassies and our embassies. But you know, we could help boost those global connections as a way to also open new vistas for thinking about that future that you very, very eloquently just described. Yeah, I think that's, that's a wonderful way of putting it. Uh, and you know, I completely agree with you. I'm such a believer in uh, economic migration making a positive difference to communities uh, and societies. I mean, we just see that living in London. I mean, just the number of different communities that, that coexist there. Uh, and it's the same in, in Minnesota, in Michigan, across, across the Midwest. And it's, it's a story that resonates for me personally. I mean, my, my parents were, um, they were of Armenian extraction and they came to the UK when they were kids. And my dad was nine, my mom was a teenager, they met in the UK and so I'm first generation born in the UK and uh, you know we all we're all inspired by the American dream but uh, the UK provided me with an opportunity to and my parents with an equivalent opportunity to to come and make a new life and, and prosper uh, and go forward so uh, me sitting here with you is because of open British policies that uh, supported us and and uh, helped us to, to thrive and become part of society. So this is an area that really resonates with me personally uh, as well. And I think, you know, sitting where you are in, in Minneapolis, which was really the epicenter of, of the Black Lives Matter movement, which has completely transformed the global conversation in a really dynamic way. Uh, and in a way that I think is really exciting in terms of the opportunities it opens up for making sure that uh, minority communities' voices are heard, uh, and not just heard, respected, that our economic policies and our political decisions absolutely take into account uh, their needs uh, and their voices. So uh, I think it's a really exciting time for diaspora communities. And you, you mentioned specifically Africa. And one thing that uh, perhaps you haven't caught up with, because it's, it's happened very recently, is that the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, our, our Foreign Affairs Ministry, uh, has, is about to merge with our uh, International Development Ministry. So this is a decision that the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, just very recently made. That merger will take place on the 1st of September this year. So it's coming up very soon. 
So for us, that's, that's massive organizationally and structurally uh, in terms of corporate change. But in terms of bringing together all of our diplomatic levers and tools uh, and resources and expertise and fusing it with our foreign policy expertise, that creates something I think that's very powerful in terms of what the UK can do in the international space and particularly in Africa, uh, where development is, is at the core of what we're doing. So it's a really exciting time, I think, for the UK's Africa strategy. It's gone to a new level with this merger. Um, and I think as a result, that's gonna open up more opportunities for us to collaborate with close partners like the US as we increase even further uh, our influence and what we're doing in that space on, on that continent. Because the opportunities are, as you say, are incredible, not just in North Africa where I was in Morocco, uh, but in Sub-Saharan Africa as well. So we have a great question, which is, you know, our University of Minnesota and many of our universities here are incredible research institutions, academic institutions, um, and people here like to partner. Uh, you know, we have some partnerships that we, you know, kind of think about, you know, off and on. But have you got some ideas or some specific ways that we could think about accelerating because we need to recharge some of the international student and other kind of connections after COVID. But in, give us your thoughts on how we might specifically lift up those inter-academic, inter-research, inter-scientific connectivities, um, you know, as it becomes safe, as things move ahead. Yeah, so I mean, UK science has always thrived on international cooperation. Uh, we, we are absolutely committed to that continuing. And you know, if, if anyone says, oh, Brexit means things have shut up and the UK is looking inward, that's absolutely not the case. It's the opposite. The UK is open for collaboration across the board and an R&D and scientific cooperation is a really, really important um, pillar of that. So the UK government's recently uh, given, uh, I think close to a billion pounds to support uh, R&D and scientific innovation in the UK. Uh, and, and a portion of that, a significant portion of that is to support international partnerships and international collaboration. So in terms of high level policy, this government is, is giving a huge green light uh, to that kind of international collaboration. So we, we've got the existing programs uh, that have always been there, like the Marshall Scholarships Program, which allows international mm -hmm. exchange and postgraduate study uh, in the UK. None of that is going away. That will continue to thrive. Um, but when it comes to academic partnerships, we want to hear from, uh, from Midwestern universities and Minnesotan universities. And we have a science innovation team uh, in Chicago uh, that prioritizes supporting mm -hmm. those partnerships. So again, through Jan, through me, we can connect you uh, to Dr. Carl Dolan, who leads on, on that side of things uh, in Chicago and makes sure that you have the contacts and partnerships you're looking for uh, on the UK side. This is very exciting. And it makes me think about um, a future Zoom meeting, a webinar, uh, where we got your key people and then really did outreach to the critical partnership person at all of our academic institutions and our we also have other research like the Hormel Institute and others uh, to really have a, a focused conversation on that point. One of the things that you mentioned which is interesting now that we're uh, 
sort of approaching, we're on the 100th anniversary of some very important parts of our partnership. Uh, but one of them was the, really the creation of the sort of notion of humanitarian aid, the creation of Save the Children there yeah. in the UK, the creation of Oxfam. Uh, you know, we're, uh, we're very fortunate that in our region, our farmers and our grain milling companies were incredibly involved in those big uh, efforts that addressed the, 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 you know, the forced hunger and famine in Belgium and in France during the First World War, and then the famine relief programs in all of Europe and in Russia and the Ukraine after. So our leader for that effort, Herbert Hoover, was living in the UK as an international banker. He was, uh, happened to be there when the president called and asked him, would you lead this effort? He agreed. And then he asked a Minnesotan, James Ford Bell, who famously ultimately was the creator of what we call General Mills, but at that time it was the Washburn Crosby. They asked him, he asked him to be the person connecting. So we have this deep appreciation in Minnesota of the UK's role in those kind of international, uh, you know, relief and Red Cross and all of that. Yeah. I'm hoping that over the course of this year, where we have some opportunities like Armistice Day and others, um, that we can, you know, do a little bit of history, but a very specific opportunity is October 16th. It's World Food Day. It's the day of the birth of the Food and Agriculture Organization and the beginning of the, the United Nations. The United States and Europe, and this specific in the UK, were the creators, and our governor at that time, or Governor Stassen at that time, was part of that founding. I'm hoping that we use some special opportunities to then talk about the history of our relationship, the history of how we've come together as something that then helps us touch on other aspects. And I know that in the case of, you know, London having some of the world's premier museums and other aspects of your deep history, tourism will remain a key element. Any thoughts for us about how we link people who want to do you know, heritage tourism and people who want to do, you know, sort of art tourism and food culture. How can we um, kind of restart travel in a kind of a sense that then people think of it as travel with a purpose, which gives them a reason to, you know, put up with a lot more security, a lot more precautions, a lot more caretaking. What might we do together to lift that tourism back up? It's a great question, you know, and again, it comes back with well, the heart of what you're saying is that the heartbeat of this relationship between the US and the UK are the people to people links. And those are forged through, we talked about culture already, we talked about, you know, you mentioned food and drink and gastronomic tourism. That's, that's a big part of it, but also just humanitarian links. Uh, we do so much together. Uh, in the international aid space. And one of my uh, earliest jobs was, I was working for you guys, I was working for USAID in the former Soviet Union, um, bringing in foreign investment into kind of, into state owned companies as a way of boosting uh, the economy in, in the former Soviet republics. And uh, even in that space, I would see, you know, the US side, USAID partnering 
uh, with, with UK international aid. So it's just, it's something that we always do instinctively. We look to each other as mm -hmm. partners when it comes to humanitarian missions. Um, you know, and looking again at, at the UN and UNICEF, uh, you mentioned the Red Cross, those are all fora where we need to make sure that, that the partnership and the ties are as strong as ever and continue to grow and build. Yeah. So I, mean, I, just, I was going to say, I know that Visit Britain, which is the organization in the UK, the state organization that promotes tourism opportunities and makes sure uh, the UK is as welcoming a place as possible for our foreign guests. I know they're looking at exactly the questions that you're asking right now. What can we do in the meantime, while we still have these uh, travel restrictions to some degree, to make sure that people who want a UK experience, uh, whether that's in food and drink or culturally or, or tourism or in any other way, find channels to, uh, to respond to that need. So I know that I've got colleagues and partners back in London who are looking at that. And I can certainly share some information with you about what Visit Britain as an organization is proposing. That's great. Well, you know, what's interesting about this um, merger is that uh, we have some very large uh, aid organizations based in Minnesota, but just in general, we have a lot. And this um, kind of historically has always gone through DFID, the, the de development agency. Yeah. Now it will come through the Foreign Service, Foreign Ministry, your yeah. agency. And it's dawning on me that perhaps the organizations throughout our region who have historically, or maybe just once, but maybe year after year, partnered with UK or Commonwealth-based um, uh, organization, Australia's got a lot, New Zealand, et cetera, um, need to know about you and your office because they haven't been thinking uh, that way yet, but soon, you will be the single point for that kind of mixed contact, foreign ministry, you know, development assistance, et cetera. Um, UN type agencies, uh, you know, UNDP and all of that. So will you have um, any kind of, re you know, reorganization or staffing, or will you have somebody who will be kind of the new critical point for that kind of uh, now merged contact uh, requirements of some U.S. organizations. Yeah, I mean, these, you're absolutely right. This is there's going to be a transition. Uh, it's an exciting one because I think, as I said before, it puts development at the heart of foreign policy, um, and it will be a transition for organizations like Save the Children and Oxfam. And so, it's our responsibility as the British government to make sure that transition is as smooth and as seamless as possible. Uh, and, the, and key partners like those organizations uh, have the information they need and know exactly how uh, they will operate when it comes to uh, contacts or structures within the organization. So the new, the new organization is going to be called the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office. So instead of being the FCO, we'll become the FCDO. Uh, and if you could see my inbox, it's full right now of a live debate uh, on what that organization should look like, how it should be structured, what does the board look like. Um, uh, we'll have a new head of that service uh, starting on 1st of uh, September, Sir Philip Barton, 
who was the former High Commissioner in Pakistan. Uh, so he's a very seasoned diplomat, but having worked in that part of the world, he gets development, he understands how that works. So I think, watch this space, but we will be doing uh, an outreach campaign to organizations that we partner with in the development area to make sure that the transition is as seamless as possible and that they understand the new opportunities available to them uh, by this merger. Great. So we're going to sneak in one more question from the chat. Um, Minneapolis <coughs> and St. Paul are known as the big center of headquarters. We've got, you know, the highest per capita of Fortune 500s, et cetera. Yeah. Financial services are critical to this. They make those headquarters possible. They make trade possible. Here's the question. What are the future needs for financial services to support greater UK and Minnesota trade? What might you see as those future needs? So I think business in general, uh, when it comes to economic growth, always needs clarity, it needs certainty and it needs opportunity. And I think that's doubly the case when it comes to financial services. People don't like surprise when it comes to finance. They, they really want to know what's going to happen. Uh, and I think that's really important right now when it comes to the regulatory framework that governs financial services. Mm -hmm. And after Brexit, uh, I think it's been very important for the British government to send a strong signal that uh, the UK city and the financial sector remains absolutely stable, that the regulatory framework is, is not going to change in any way that's, that's radical. Uh, and so when it comes to Minnesota, our message to the financial service industry is that the UK will continue to be uh, an absolutely reliable partner when it comes to this sector. The regulatory framework will continue to be uh, state-of-the-art and, and business-friendly, uh, and the UK city, the city of London, will continue to be the financial hub it's always been. So, so the message is there's certainty, there's stability, and as ever, we want to take the relationship further when it comes to collaboration uh, in that space. It sounds like... You're talking about, we don't have to worry about liquidity. And that seems like really good news for those of us working in that area. This has been an opportunity to ask you a lot of questions. I just want to know your impression. You've lived all over the world. And now you're in the Midwest. Some of us think of this as God's country, and we know it's God's country. Some of us call it flyover or whatever. But uh, tell this audience that came on to hear your views and to see where you're going to take that consulate there in Chicago. What's your first impressions? What's, what's, what surprised you? Well, first of all, I never want to hear the expression of flyover. I, I think that's, that's something that we, 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 should, we should definitely avoid because this is a region that has absolutely captured me, my imagination from the beginning. Not just because of, not just because of the kind of, you know, uh, stereotypes of Midwestern friendliness, which I love. I mean, I just love having people come up to me in the street or in the supermarket and, and talking to me. That's just fantastic. Um, but the, the opportunity here is, is absolutely incredible. The economic diversity. You, I look at places like Detroit and, and the regeneration of that city. 
uh, and the opportunities there for, for investors to come in. I look at the agricultural sector, which, uh, which, is, which is thriving throughout the region and the opportunities there for collaboration with, with British farmers in the area of uh, agri-tech and, uh, and innovation. Um, financial services we've talked about, advanced manufacturing, aerospace, um, it's, it's all here. So uh, I think my job and my team's job, and I know we're all passionately committed uh, to this, is to tell the story, is to toot the horn. I think Brits and Minnesotans have got something in common that we, we perhaps uh, don't toot the horn enough or, or find that awkward. Um, but I think we need, to, we need to raise our heads and make sure that everyone on both sides knows uh, just how significant the economic opportunity is here. Um, and Minnesota's really, I mean, it's, 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 it's leading the way on this. We're about to celebrate 75 years of 3M uh, in the UK. I mean, the, wow. history, the history runs really deep. Uh, and uh, I think, you know, people need to know that uh, that opportunity is there for the future as well. So, you know, we're really proud of our companies, um, you know, what they do and how they do it here. But we often forget how big they are out in the world. And so that reminder about 3M, 75 years is, you know, the end of the war, the founding of the United Nations and all of those important agencies, the food relief, famine relief that we did together, all of those different components, these uh, entrepreneurs in the UK, in the United States, in Minnesota and all over, um, picked up the pieces after that war and said, you know, we can't do this again. We've got to advance people to people relationships. We can't go on with world wars. And actually our organization was born out of that belief expressed by our president uh, Eisenhower and many, many others um, that we needed to build those person to person relationships. And um, we are learning how this Zoom can make that happen. We used to write little postcards to our pen pals. So we know there are differences, but I'm hopeful that this is just the next in a set of conversations that with your uh, work in Chicago and with Jan's work here and with our own efforts that we dig some of those new areas. In the very beginning of our conversation, you talked about really wanting to push the envelope as far out as possible, whether it's a free trade negotiation or if it's the climate talks that are coming up. I know the UK is doing incredibly innovative things and deep thinking. I think that visibility of out of the box, push the envelope, let's be future oriented, let's make new things happen is only possible because we're planting those ideas in some rich soil that's been fertilized with lives and blood and many other things over several hundred years now. And we are watering and also knowing that there are generations coming behind us who want to be able to have as good of a life as we've had. They will take that that we leave. And so our responsibility now is to keep this conversation going and to make sure we turn conversations into business deals and cultural exchanges and students and people who fall in love and move. But I'm very, very grateful for your time today, for the time of Jan and helping put this together and our whole team and Gabrielle, 
and our folks here look forward to hopefully maybe seeing you at Brit's Pub on Armistice Day and we can discuss all kinds of things on the way up but if it's virtual maybe we can get you back especially to talk about some of those special stories that you have that are part of how we're linked together. Thank you again. Enjoy the rest of your day there. And from all of us here at Global Minnesota and who are watching today, thank you again for coming and being with us in our country for this period of time, whatever it is, we want to make the most of it. And we know you do too. Thank you again. Thank you so much, Mark. It was an honor and a pleasure. And I really do hope that we'll be sharing a pint in Brit's pub in November. <laughs>